0: I give you Dr. James M. McPherson. It's customary for the speaker to thank the person who introduced him. I suppose it would seem ungracious if I don't, but uh, introductions can sometimes be a two-edged sword if they lead the audience to such high expectations that disappointment is inevitable. So I'm not sure whether I should thank Bill and Barbara also for her article in the newsletter. It reminds me of a story, a Lincoln story, appropriately enough. When Lincoln was uh, uh, first in the White House, A lot of his friends from Springfield came to visit him there, some of them, of course, looking for jobs. They looked around. The White House was a far more elegant place than where Lincoln had lived before. He now exercised a great deal of power. He enjoyed prestige. They uh, said to him, Abe, uh, you're now at the summit uh, of power. We expect great things of you. Of course, you know it was happening. The country was falling apart around him. Seven states had already left the Union. He was confronting the decision of uh, what to do at Fort Sumter, getting conflicting advice from his cabinet, pressure from all sides to do this, not to do that. Uh, so Lincoln wasn't quite so sure that being president. Was a great thing living in this elegant White House was a great thing, and as his friends left, one of his oldest friends uh, stopped and lingered for a moment at the door and said, "Abe, how do you really like being here?" And Lincoln said, "Well, I tell you, it's like the uh, notorious character who was ridden out of town on a rail with a coat of tarn feathers. If it were not for the honor of the thing, I'd rather walk." So if it were not of the, uh, for the honor of the thing, I'm not so sure that I uh, wouldn't, pre- wouldn't prefer a, a slightly less enthusiastic introduction, but I thank you for it nevertheless. It also reminds me of what happened to me early today. Bill mentioned that I was on the Today Show. I was interviewed by Bryant Gumbel, who did get my name right, but at the top of the hour, Jane Pauley said uh, she does uh, what's going to happen during the next uh, half hour, uh, that John McPherson was going to be on talking about his book. It reminded me of William Tecumseh Sherman's famous definition of military glory, which is to be killed in battle and have your name spelled wrong in the newspapers. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a serious talk this evening, and it is about Abraham Lincoln and the concept of liberty, which is appropriate. I think two days before the 180th anniversary of Lincoln's birthday and in the month that is also designated as Black History Month. hundred and twenty-five years ago, lacking just a couple of months, on April 18, 1864, Lincoln took the train from Washington up to Baltimore, where he gave a short speech for the opening of the Maryland Sanitary Fair. Lincoln's visit to Baltimore occurred against a backdrop of three years of grueling, destructive, relentless war, and it came on the eve, of of course, of Union military offensives in the spring of 1864 that were destined to be more lethal and relentless than anything that had gone before. It was just a year earlier and a few months that Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and just ten days before this Baltimore speech The Senate had passed a 13th Amendment to the Constitution to abolish chattel slavery forever. And on this occasion, Lincoln gave what I think is one of his more remarkable short speeches. He said, The world has never had a good definition of the word liberty, and the American people just now are much in want of one. We all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. With some, the word liberty may mean for each man to do as he pleases with himself and the product of his labor, while with others, the same word may mean for some men to do as they please with other men and the product of other men's labor. Here are two not only different but incompatible things called by the same name liberty. And Lincoln went on to illustrate his point with a parable about animals, which he so often did. The shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat, he said. For which the sheep thanks the shepherd as a liberator while the wolf denounces him for the same act as the destroyer of liberty especially as the sheep is a black one plainly the sheep and wolf are not agreed upon a definition of the word liberty and precisely the same difference prevails today among us human creatures even in the north and all professing to love liberty hence we behold the processes by which thousands are daily passing from under the yoke of bondage hailed by some as the advance of liberty and bewailed by others as the destruction of all liberty. The shepherd in this fable was, of course, Lincoln himself. The black sheep was the slave, the wolf his owner. Lincoln chose to tell this story in a city where three years earlier a regiment of Massachusetts soldiers on their way to defend the capital had been attacked by a mob. They defended themselves and killed several of the mob. This incident produced, among other things, one of the Confederacy's favorite poems, set to music, Maryland My Maryland, in which Lincoln is denounced as a despot, a tyrant, trying to snuff out liberty in Maryland and in the South. And even as Lincoln spoke in Baltimore in April 1864, Marylanders were debating a proposal to amend their own state constitution to abolish slavery, a proposal that split the white population down the middle, with one side supporting it as a step toward liberty and the other condemning it as a despotic blow against liberty. And of course it was almost exactly a year later after this speech that another native of Maryland assassinated Lincoln in the name of liberty shouting as he jumped to the stage of Ford's theater Sic Semper Tyrannis thus always to tyrants. Now to us today it seems self-evident that the emancipation of four million slaves from bondage was a great triumph of liberty. But for a majority of white Americans in the Civil War era until almost the end of the war, this accomplishment represented the antithesis of liberty. By a majority of white Americans I mean most southerners and more than two-fifths of the northerners, the Democrats, who opposed emancipation to the bitter end. It was the outcome of the war that transformed and expanded the concept of liberty to include the abolition of slavery and Lincoln was the principal agent in this transformation. Lincoln's complaint that the world had never had a good definition of liberty was well-founded. The problem is, and was then, that there are too many definitions. The Oxford English Dictionary has eight major definitions of liberty with historical illustrations and several minor ones. One historian of ideas has recorded some 200 definitions they run the gamut from natural rights, natural liberties, civil liberties, intellectual freedom, religious liberty to toleration of eccentricities or of deviant personal behavior and a range of other things as well. The foremost philosopher of liberty in Lincoln's time and perhaps of all time was John Stuart Mill, who defined liberty as protection against the tyranny of the political rulers a concept that involved the limitation of power of the power which can le- be legitimately exercised by the society over the individual. The leading American political scientist in Lincoln's day, Francis Lieber, defined liberty as a high degree of untrammeled political action in the citizen, an ag- acknowledgment of his dignity and his important rights by the government. A modern historian, whom most of you know, Don Fehrenbacher, has has uh, pointed out that from the beginning Americans have associated liberty primarily with their re- rejection of coercive authority, especially the authority of government. The classic statement of American liberty is, of course, the Declaration of Independence, which says that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Governments are instituted to secure these rights, but, said Jefferson, governments derive their just powers from the consent of the government, and whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Now, the question of which men were included among the all men whom Jefferson declared created equal, and indeed whether the generic term men included women, would later become significant, as we'll see a little bit later in my talk. For now, let me point out that Common to all of these definitions of liberty that I just quoted is the assumption that the main sphere of liberty is political and that the greatest potential threat to the liberties and rights of the individual comes from government itself. Though government was necessary to secure these rights, as Jefferson wrote, government must also be prevented from becoming so strong or corrupt as to undermine that same liberty. Most American writings about the concept of liberty over the past three centuries have focused on civil liberties and their relationship to government, which is hardly surprising. Because the national consciousness, indeed the nation itself, was forged in the struggle for these civil liberties against what Americans considered an overweening, overweening, tyrannical government power. Many of the founding fathers were preoccupied with the threat of government to liberty. They tended to see all political history back at least as far as classical Greece and Rome as a conflict between liberty and power, with liberty usually losing in the end to the aggrandizement of centralized power by a Caesar, a tyrant, an emperor, a king, a dictator. Republics based on the liberties and equal rights of citizens under law had been fragile and usually short-lived experiments. At great cost, Englishmen from the days of the Magna Carta down to the glorious revolution of 1688 had carved out an enlarged sphere of liberty and self-government to their representatives in parliament curtailing and limiting the powers of the crown in the process and it was these rights and liberties of Englishmen that Americans fought for in their revolution of 1776 it was this fragile experiment in republicanism that they sought to protect against the threat of overweening power by adopting a bill of rights by instituting a series of checks and balances and a division of powers within the national government and by creating a federal system that fragmented power among national, state, and local governments. Thus, when Americans of the revolutionary and post-revolutionary generations, uh, the generations that Lincoln grew up in, spoke of liberty, they usually meant the rights of states and localities, freedom of the press, of speech, of assembly, of religion, the right to security in person and home against unwarranted search and seizure, you'll recognize that I'm going through the Bill of Rights here, the right to bear arms, the right to a trial by jury, sanctity of property, the writ, the writ of habeas corpus. These were the birthrights in principle and in practice of Americans of European descent. A good many of the founding fathers thought, thought that they might also be the birthright, in principle of at least, of all other Americans as well, They believed that in theory the phrase all men are created equal meant just what it said. In a word, many of the Founding Fathers believed that the enslavement of Americans of African descent was wrong, contrary to the ideals of liberty that they had fought for in the Revolution. But they were faced with a condition, not a theory, a reality, not an ideal. The reality was the existence of slavery in all of the colonies that rebelled against Britain and most of the states that ratified the Constitution. a a reality rooted a century or more deep in custom, law, the economy. Wherever the economic roots were shallow and the number of slaves was not large, north of the Mason-Dixon line, the libertarian ideology of the revolution managed to accomplish the abolition of slavery in that generation. But south of the line, liberty and slavery grew up together with a diminishing sense of their incompatibility after 1800. By the generation before the Civil War, most white Southerners, and a good many Northerners as well, not only considered slavery and liberty quite compatible, but even believed that the slavery of blacks was essential to the liberty of whites. One obstacle to applying the concept of liberty to slaves lay in their legal status as property. The right of property was an essential part of the American notion of liberty. As Francis Lieber put it, one of the staunchest principles of civil liberty is the firmest possible protection of individual property. Sam Adams, radical as he was, asked, what liberty can there be when property is taken away without consent? The Fifth Amendment to the Constitution states that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due, ses- due process of law. Of course, anti-slavery people argued that this provision mandated the liberty of black people in the territories where the national government had jurisdiction, but the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision sanctioned instead the pro-slavery position that this amendment protected the slave owner's right to take his human property into the territories and have it protected there. In another sense also, the notion of property inhibited the application of the concept of liberty to slaves. And this is a little bit uh, more complex and difficult to understand, but I think even more important. An essential component of liberty under a Republican government, as Thomas Jefferson and his followers viewed it, was independence. The opposite of independence, of course, is dependence. A man who depended on another for his living was not truly free. He was subject to the authority, to the orders and manipulation of the man who paid his wages and who therefore dictated the terms of his existence. Independence, and therefore liberty, could be achieved only by the ownership of productive property, a farm, a business, or a trade, or a profession. Only a society of property-owning farmers, artisans who own their own means of production, tradesmen, professionals, could sustain a republican government. And in Jefferson's view, the growth of a large class without property would eventually bring down republican government and erected despotism in its place. That's why Jefferson feared the growth of a large propertyless wage earning class as sores on the body politic. That is why most state constitutions initially required the ownership of property or at least the paying of taxes as a qualification for voting. Women were dependent. Children were dependent. Slaves were dependent. Propertyless, Propertyless laborers were dependent. Therefore they were subject to the authority of their husbands, fathers, masters, or employers. That is why they were defined out of the body politic of free men who owned property and therefore enjoyed the the civil and political liberty of self-government in a republic. Now of course with the rise of industrialization and of immigration on a large scale after 1820, a substantial wage earning class of white men grew up in the United States, owning little, if any, property. Various kinds of protests and responses to this development fueled the politics and the political economy of the Jacksonian era. One response was to broaden the definition of political liberty and self-government by eliminating property and tax-paying qualifications for voting in most states. One's labor power became an effective form of property qualifying one for liberty, that is, if you were free, white, 21, and male. But the notion of independence as a fundamental part of liberty persisted and became bound up with racism, especially in the South, to create an ideology of black slavery as the necessary basis of white liberty. The first part of this ideology was the Mudsill philosophy, expressed by many Southern thinkers in the 1850s, most bluntly by Senator James Hammond of South Carolina in his famous King Cotton speech of 1858. Hammond said in all social systems there must be a class to do the menial duties to perform the drudgery of life. It constitutes the very mud sill of society. Turning to senators from northern states Hammond said that your whole hiring class of manual laborers and operatives as you call them are essentially slaves. The difference between us is that our slaves are hired for life Yours are hired by the day." Hammond was of course here reformulating the old Jeffersonian theme that liberty required independence, that is ownership of property, that everybody else was slaves. The mud sill that held up those who uh, who kept out of the mud, those who owned property. And because most of the unskilled, propertyless workers in the South were black slaves, most southern whites did, in fact, own property. But most important of all, they owned the most vital property of all, a white skin. This so-called heron folk democracy, heron folk, German word for master race, ruling race, the equality of all who belonged to the master race, became the perceived basis for white liberty in the South, for property owner, property-owning whites and non-property-owning whites alike. It was a reading of the Declaration of Independence that said all white men are created equal. As John C. Calhoun put it, with us the two great divisions of society are not the rich and the poor, but white and black. And all the former, the whites, the poor as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and are respected and treated as equals. In other words... Slavery was the mud sill that kept all white people on a level out of the mud. Another Alabama political leader, uh, an Alabama political leader, put it this way in 1860, slavery secures the equality of the white race and upon its permanent establishment, that's, that is slavery, rests the hope of democratic liberty. Or as one of the South's leading newspapers, the Richmond Enquirer, put it succinctly in 1856, freedom is not possible without slavery. This idea was by no means confined to the South alone. Many northern working men shared it, especially immigrants and other wage earners at the bottom of the social scale, where they feared competition with blacks, particularly if the slaves were freed and came north looking for jobs. This fear sparked many of the anti-black riots in northern cities from the 1830s to the 1860s, including the largest of all the New York draft riots of 1863. This heron-folk theme of white supremacy was also a fundamental premise of the Democratic Party of that era, and Stephen A. Douglas was one of its principal spokesmen, most notably in his famous debates with Lincoln in 1858, in which Douglas's main theme, which he hammered home over and over again, was that Lincoln stood for freeing the slaves and letting them all come to Illinois, where where they would degrade white men down to this mudsill level. Lincoln rejected the mudsill philosophy. He rejected the notion that the rights of liberty and the pursuit of happiness were confined to the white race or that the rights, that the white race's liberty must rest on the mudsill of black slavery. Lincoln, of course, was not the only American to challenge this dogma. From the beginning of their movement, the abolitionists had insisted that blacks were equal to whites in the sight of God and equally entitled to liberty in this world. And indeed the abolitionists and the radical wing of the Republican Party went farther than Lincoln in maintaining the the principle of equal rights for all people. But because of his prominence as a Republican Party leader after the debates of 1858 and his power as President of the United States after 1860, Lincolns were the opinions that mattered most and that are of course of most interest to us. Lincoln, as I think you're all aware, had always considered slavery an institution, as he put it, founded on, in 1837, founded on both injustice and bad policy. But Lincoln had frequently nevertheless indulged in the common American habit, so annoying to Europeans, especially the British uh, of that era, of describing the United States as a free country that enjoyed more civil and religious liberty, these are Lincoln's words, more human liberty, human rights, than any other people in the history of the world. Even as late as 1861, Lincoln could refer to the free institutions which we have unceasingly enjoyed for three quarters of a century. But a decade or so earlier, in the early 1850s, and especially after the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, Lincoln had begun to question just how free these institutions were so long as slavery existed in this otherwise professedly free country. The monstrous injustice of slavery, he said in his famous Peoria speech, 1854, deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world, enables the enemies of free institutions with plausibility to taunt us as hypocrites. In the 1850s, Lincoln began to insist, contrary to the belief of probably two-thirds of white Americans, began to insist that the Declaration of Independence was not merely the white man's charter of freedom, The Negro is included in the word men used in the Declaration, he said. This is the great fundamental principle upon which our free institutions rest. Negro slavery is violative of that principle because the black man is entitled to the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I hold that he is as much entitled to these as the white man. I agree with Judge Douglas that he is not my equal in many respects. Here Lincoln stopped short of the full abolitionist endorsement of racial equality. But Lincoln continued, in the right to eat the bread without leave of anybody else which his own hand earns, he is my equal and the equal of Judge Douglas and the equal of every living man. Lincoln did not consider this to be a new definition of liberty. He believed that Thomas Jefferson and the other founders had meant to include blacks in the phrase, all men are created equal, even though many of these founders had owned slaves. Before, Lincoln thought, they were stating a principle that they hoped would eventually become a reality. Douglas, on the contrary, maintained that Jefferson had not meant all men, to include blacks, nor, for that matter, any other race than Caucasians. These are Douglass' words. This government was made by white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity forever and should never be administered by any except white men. The signers of the Declaration had no reference to the Negro whatever when they declared all men to be created equal. They meant white men, men of European birth and European descent, and had no reference either to the Negro, the savage Indian, the Fiji, the Malay, or any other inferior and degraded race. If a national referendum could have been held on these two definitions of liberty, Lincoln's inclusive one and Douglas's definition exclusive of all but white men, Douglas's position would have won in 1858, but Lincoln persisted, against the odds, denouncing Douglass's argument as representing a disastrous declension from the faith of the fathers, a declension that if it went much farther would extinguish the right of liberty in America. The Know-Nothings, for example, were trying to deny to white immigrants the liberty, uh, liberties of free-born Americans. Here was the danger, Lincoln warned in 1855. Once a nation decided that its constitutional liberties applied only to some but not to all men equally, the torch of liberty would go up. Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid, Lincoln said in 1855 with reference to the Know-Nothings. As a nation, we began that by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the Know-Nothings get control, it will read, All men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I should prefer immigrating to some other country where they make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure without the base alloy of hypocrisy. Lincoln rejected the Mudsill philosophy, the Mudsill philosophy that said the equality of whites was dependent on their being able to stand on a mud sill uh, of black slavery below them. In, In fact, Lincoln said the opposite was true, that if you enslave or degrade one group of men, it will drag you all down into the mud. To insist that the Negro was not a man in the sense of the Declaration of Independence would boomerang on all of us, Lincoln said, on many occasions through the 1850s. Our reliance must be in the love of liberty, the preservation of the spirit which prizes liberty as the heritage of all men, in all lands, everywhere. Destroy this spirit and you have planted the seeds of despotism around your own doors. Familiarize yourselves with the chains of bondage and you are preparing your own limbs to wear them. He who would be no slave must consent to have no slave. Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves. Accustomed to trample on the rights of those around you, you have lost the genius of your own independence and become the fit subjects of the first cunning tyrant who rises. It was Lincoln's eloquent definition or redefinition of liberty that the South in 1860 most feared. So when he won the presidency, Southern states seceded in the name of their own liberties, of property and state of property and state sovereignty in the name of their right proclaimed by the Declaration of Independence to alter or abolish the form of government if it became destructive of the purpose of protecting their properties and liberties. Southerners, said an Alabama newspaper in 1861, are a liberty-loving people. The same spirit of freedom and independence that impelled our fathers to the separation from the British government will inspire our fight for independence from a tyrannical and oppressive government Dominated by black Republican Yankees, a Georgia secessionist declared that Southerners would be either slaves in the Union or free men out of it. A Texan called for all true sons of the Lone Star State to rally to the standard of liberty and equality for white men against our abolitionist enemies, who are pledged to prostrate the the white freemen of the South down to equality with Negroes. The mudsill philosophy. Jefferson Davis appealed to his people to renew such sacrifices as our fathers made to the holy cause of constitutional liberty with the high and solemn motive of defending and protecting the rights which our fathers bequeathed to us from the tyranny of an unbridled majority, the most odious form of despotism. Northern Republicans, including Lincoln, ridiculed these southern claims to be fighting for liberty. For the Confederates to compare their cause to that of the founding fathers, wrote William Cullen Bryant, the poet and also editor of the New York Evening Post, was an atrocious libel on the men of 1776. Those men, said Bryant, fought to establish the rights of man and principles of universal liberty. The South, by contrast, is rebelling not in the interest of general humanity, but of a domestic despotism. Their motto is not liberty, but slavery. Northerners, of course, could not deny the South's right of revolution for just cause. All Americans, as heirs of 1776, believed in that right. Lincoln said in 1861 that revolution is a moral right when exercised for a morally justifiable cause. And these are Lincoln's words as I go on. When, exerc- when exercised without such a cause, revolution is no right but simply a wicked exercise of physical power. Lincoln's phrase for a morally justifiable cause was crucial. The South, in his view, had no just cause. The immediate cause of secession was the election of a president they did not like, Lincoln, by a perfectly legal means under the Constitution that all Americans had sworn to obey. The long-term cause was the fear that a Republican administration would restrict and harm slavery, which Southerners defined as liberty. But for Lincoln, slavery was slavery, not liberty, but its opposite. Thus, secession was no more than a wicked exercise of physical power. Even before he committed himself in the second year of the Civil War to emancipation as a war aim, Lincoln repeatedly insisted that it was the North, not the South, that fought to preserve the revolutionary heritage of liberty. The republic that the Founding Fathers had established as a bulwark of liberty was a fragile, vulnerable experiment in a world populated by kings, emperors, czars, dictators. Most republics through history had been overthrown by counter-revolutions or had collapsed from within. The French republics created by that country's revolutions in the lifetime of some Americans still alive in 1861 had twice succumbed to emperors and had once seen the Bourbon monarchy restored. The United States represented, in Lincoln's words, the last best hope for the survival of Republican government in the world. European conservatives regularly predicted that this upstart democracy would collapse. A successful rebellion by the South would confirm that prediction. The central idea of this struggle, Lincoln said in 1861, is the necessity of proving that popular government is not an absurdity. We must settle this question now whether in a free government the minority have the right to break up the government whenever they choose. This struggle, he said, was not altogether for today. It is for a vast future. It embraces more than the fate of these United States. It presents to the whole family of man the question of whether a constitutional republic, a democracy, a nation conceived in liberty, as he said at Gettysburg, can long endure. Slavery was not the only problem that involved the question of liberty during the war, though. In any war, the civil liberties of citizens are liable to become victims of the passions or necessities of the conflict. During World War I, hundreds of German-Americans, pacifists, and radicals went to jail, and tens of thousands of others lost their freedom of speech, press, assembly, and other civil liberties. In the first months of American participation in World War II, the government rounded up and interned more than 100,000 Americans whose only crime was their Japanese ancestry. Those violations of civil liberties occurred in wars fought far from American shores. The Civil War posed an even greater threat, potential threat, to civil liberties. By its very nature, a civil war produces a more intense concern with internal security than a foreign war. Martial law prevails over large parts of a country wracked by Civil War. Newspapers and other media of communication are often muzzled. Enemy partisans and sympathizers are arbitrarily arrested and jailed, sometimes tortured and murdered. Both sides in the American Civil War experienced an erosion of civil liberties during the conflict. One of Lincoln's first wartime orders as commander-in-chief was to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus in portions of Maryland wracked by guerrilla activities and mob attacks on Union forces. If the Confederates had gained control of Maryland by such actions, the national capital would be surrounded by enemy territory and the North would have lost the war before it had really started. Northern soldiers arrested numerous pro-Southern citizens in Maryland, including the mayor and police chief of Baltimore and 31 members of the state legislature and clapped them in prison for months and in a few cases for more than a year without trial. Lincoln eventually extended the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus to the whole country in cases of what he defined as disloyal persons who are not adequately restrained by the ordinary processes of law from giving aid and comfort in various ways to the insurrection. By the time the war was over Union soldiers had arrested and detained in prison without charge at least 15,000 civilians, while military courts had tried and convicted hundreds of others. Most of these arrests took place in border slave states, like Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, where loyalties were divided and active fighting was going on, or in portions of Confederate states that were conquered and occupied by Union forces. Most of those who were arrested had in fact engaged in activities with military significance such as guerrilla attacks on Union soldiers, burning of bridges, blowing up of supply bases, and the like. But some men were arrested for merely speaking or writing in favor of peace with the Confederacy or against the war policies of the Union government. And some of those arrested lived in northern states far from any active war zone. One of the most notorious wartime Violations of civil liberty occurred in Ohio, where a military court convicted Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Clement Vallandigham, of treason for speaking out against the war. Lincoln, as I think you know, commuted the sentence from imprisonment to banishment. And Lincoln went first through the Confederate lines, then on a blockade runner to Canada, where he conducted his unsuccessful campaign for governor of Ohio. Another celebrated case concerned one Lambden P. Milligan, a civilian resident of Indiana who was convicted of treason by a military court in 1864 for aiding Confederate agents trying to foment an uprising in the North. After the war, the Supreme Court overturned Milligan's conviction in a ruling that civilians cannot be tried by military courts in a region where the regularly established courts of the land are functioning as they were in Indiana. Constitutional historians regard the Milligan decision as a landmark in the defense of civil liberties. some of them also interpreted as a rebuke to the Lincoln administration's record on this issue. There was, of course, no shortage of such rebukes during the Civil War itself. In fact, Northern Democrats made this issue the central theme in their attacks on Lincoln as a despot, a tyrant, bent on snuffing out the liberties of white men, in this calamitous and unconstitutional crusade to liberate black slaves. Countless democratic speeches and editorials, especially at the time of Lanningham's arrest, condemned Lincoln for suppressing, and these are the words from their condemnation, suppressing the right of the people to assemble and discuss the affairs of government, the liberty of speech and of the press, the right of trial by jury, for violating the rights of the states and the liberties of the citizen, for establishing a despotism, Was the government, asked a group of New York Democrats in 1863, trying to suppress rebellion in the South or to destroy free institutions in the North? A Democratic pamphlet in 1863 portrayed Lincoln as standing trial before the Founding Fathers, with George Washington as the judge. The fathers pronounced Lincoln guilty. This is their sentence. You were born in the freest country under the sun, but you have converted it into a despotism we now leave you with the brand tyrant upon your brow is this how we too should leave Lincoln well first we should probably let him speak in his own defense hear him on the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus for example as you probably know that by by protecting individuals from arbitrary arrest and imprisonment without indictment and trial, this writ has been the safeguard of Anglo-American civil liberties for centuries. The United States Constitution specifies that the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, except when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. Well, said Lincoln in 1861, this rebellion was precisely the kind of exceptional crisis the framers had in mind. Chief Justice Taney insisted that only Congress, and not the President acting in executive capacity, had the power to suspend the writ. Lincoln disagreed. Many constitutional lawyers then and since have supported his position. Suspension of the writ was an emergency power. Only the executive could act quickly enough in an emergency, especially if Congress was not in session. As Lincoln put it, the very life of the nation was at stake. The survival of that nation conceived in liberty was the central purpose of the war. If the nation died, so did the fragile experiment in republican liberty launched in 1776. Thus the temporary suspension of habeas corpus, Lincoln said in his first message to Congress in 1861, was a small price to pay for the preservation of that larger framework of liberty, the nation itself. Are all the laws but one, that is habeas corpus, to go unexecuted? Lincoln asked rhetorically, and the government itself go to pieces, lest that one be violated? Or has he later phrased the issue using a simple metaphor as he so often did with great effect, by general law, life and limb must be protected. Yet often a limb must be amputated to save a life, but a life is never wisely given to save a limb. An ob- uh, something that was obviously familiar to Americans in the Civil War. Lincoln went on, I felt that measures otherwise unconstitutional might become lawful by becoming indispensable to the preservation of the Constitution through the preservation of the nation. In any event, Lincoln said, 80% or more of the military arrests and imprisonments of civilians were for military crimes such as sabotage, espionage, guerrilla bushwhacking. Under cover of, these are Lincoln's words, under cover of liberty of speech, liberty of the press, and habeas corpus, the rebels hope to keep on foot amongst us a most efficient corps of spies, informers, suppliers, and aiders and abettors of their cause. As for the, Q, uh, as for the few conspicuous cases of arrests of politicians like Vallanigham or of newspaper editors for speaking out against the war or the draft, Lincoln argued that their speeches and editorials discouraged enlistment in the army or encourage desertions from it, thereby damaging the army upon the existence and vigor of which the life of the nation depends. In a rhetorical question that became one of the most famous of his utterances on this issue, he asked, must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts while I must not touch a hair of the wily agitator who induces him to desert? I think that in such a case to silence the agitator and save the boy is not only constitutional, but with all a great great mercy." Such arguments as this did little to assuage Lincoln's critics or persuade his opponents. They saw his record on civil liberties as only part of a larger pattern of threats to traditional American liberties. Two other parts of this pattern were conscription and emancipation. Conscription, they said, robbed the citizen of a choice whether or not to serve in the army. Emancipation took away the citizens' property without due process of law. How do we, as students of the Civil War, respond to this indictment? Where do we come down on the question of Lincoln and liberty? Do we agree with Lincoln himself that preservation of the republic created in 1776 was essential to the survival of liberty? and that all else was a necessary means to this end, even if the means included a temporary suspension of some civil liberties? Do we point out that no society in the last 300 years has been able to fight a major war without some kind of conscription? That the draft in the Civil War raised directly only 10 to 15 percent of the soldiers in the Union Army, the rest of whom were volunteers, and that with its many loopholes the draft fell more lightly on the northern people than on any other people at war in modern times? Do we also point out that compared with the harassment and imprisonment of dissidents during World War I or the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II, the Lincoln administration's violation of civil liberties during the much greater crisis of the Civil War seems quite mild indeed? And as for emancipation, are we today more likely to identify with those four million black sheep liberated by Lincoln or with the loss of liberty (coughs) by 400,000 wolves to prey on those sheep. But I think there's a larger question involved here. Nothing less than a transformation in the concept of liberty itself. To illuminate this point, I'll borrow and modify slightly the definition worked out by the British philosopher Isaiah Berlin in a famous essay, Two Concepts of Liberty. The two concepts are negative liberty and positive liberty. The idea of negative liberty is more familiar. It can be defined as the absence of restraint, the freedom from interference by outside authority with our thoughts or behavior. A law requiring motorcyclists to wear a helmet would be under this definition to prevent them from enjoying the freedom to go bareheaded if they wish, a denial of their liberty. Negative liberty therefore can best be understood as freedom from freedom from interference freedom from restraint Positive liberty is freedom to This is not necessarily incompatible with negative liberty, but it has a different focus a different emphasis Take another example drawn from the idea of the freedom of the press This is usually understood as a negative liberty Freedom from interference by outside authority with what a writer writes or a reader reads. But suppose I were illiterate. I would be unable to enjoy the freedom to write or read whatever I please, not because some authority forbade me to do so, but because I could not, <clears throat> because I could not read or write anything. I would suffer not the absence of a negative liberty, freedom from, but of a positive liberty, freedom to read and write. The remedy would lie not in removal of the restraint, but in achievement of the capacity to read and write. Another way of defining the the distinction between these two concepts of liberty is to describe their relationship to power. Negative liberty and power are opposite poles. Power is the enemy of liberty, especially power concentrated in the hands of a central government. That is the kind of power that many of the Founding Fathers feared most. That is why they fragmented power in the Constitution and in the federal system. That is why they wrote a Bill of Rights to restrain the power of the national government to interfere with individual liberty. The Bill of Rights is in fact an excellent example of negative liberty. Nearly all of the first ten amendments to the Constitution apply the phrase, shall not, to the federal government. In fact, eleven of the first twelve amendments placed limitations on the power of the national government. But beginning with the 13th amendment in 1865, the amendment that abolished slavery, six of the next seven amendments radically expanded the power of the federal government at the expense of the states. The very language of these amendments illustrates the point. Instead of applying the phrase, shall not. the national government everyone grants significant new powers to the government with the phrase congress shall have the power to enforce this article four of these amendments in particular offer examples of positive liberty and they nicely illustrate the relationship between positive liberty and power power in these cases expanded liberty instead of repressing it power and liberty were allies not enemies The the emphasis was not on freedom from, but freedom to. These four amendments represent a positive expansion of liberty in another respect as well. They define into the population enjoying certain rights, privileges, and liberties large groups that had previously been defined out, black people and women. The 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments freed the slaves and granted blacks equal civil and political rights. The 19th granted women equal political rights. Lincoln played a crucial role in this historic shift of emphasis from negative to positive liberty. Those southerners who seceded from the Union in the name of preserving their liberties and rights, including the right to own slaves, and those northerners who denounced the Lincoln administration for violating their civil liberties, were acting in the tradition of negative liberty, Let me return to Lincoln's parable of the shepherd, the wolf, and the sheep that I began with. The shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat, for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as a liberator. Here is Lincoln the shepherd using the great power of the government and the army to achieve a positive liberty for the sheep. But the wolf was, of course, a believer in negative liberty, for to him the shepherd was the destroyer of liberty, especially as the sheep was a black one. Positive liberty is an open-ended concept. It has the capacity to expand toward notions of equity, justice, social welfare, equality of opportunity. For how much liberty does a starving person enjoy except the liberty to starve? How much freedom of the press can exist in a society of illiterate people? How free is a motorcyclist who is paralyzed for life by a head injury that might have been prevented if he had worn a helmet? With the new birth of freedom proclaimed in the Gettysburg Address and backed by a powerful army, Lincoln hoped to move the nation toward an expanded and open-ended concept of positive liberty. On the side of the Union, he said on another occasion, this civil war is a struggle for maintaining in the world that form and substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, a positive act. To clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, black as well as white. To afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. In giving freedom to the slave, he declared, we assure freedom to the free. Thank you. That was just a wonderful talk. It's uh, a question which is uh, still with us. All Irishmen know the real value of liberty, and this uh, might be an, an Irishman symbol of it. It is a pewter cup, and it is inscribed, presented to James M. McPherson for gallant service, the Civil War Round Table of Chicago, February tenth, 1989. Thank you so much. And now, as is our custom, we will entertain uh, some questions, if there are some.
1: Uh, today, American citizens under the age of 18 can't vote, basically, and under 35, they can't vote for president. There are other similar disabilities in the law and the Constitution. How would you describe the tension between Lincoln's idea of liberty and these restrictions that we have this very day upon black citizens?
0: uh... you probably most of you probably didn't hear the question the, the question said that uh, today there are certain restrictions on the right to vote or hold office for example those under eighteen cannot vote and those under thirty five cannot run for president how do i reconcile how do i explain the relationship between this and lincoln's concept of liberty i i think that uh, inherent in the concept of liberty since the very beginning were limitations on it based on uh, certain kinds of pragmatic or social assumptions. Uh, The process through most of American history has been to remove many of those restrictions as the conception, the social conception or the cultural conception uh, changes and broadens uh, and applies uh, to a broader group of people the definition of citizenship and or the, uh, the definition of the rights of citizenship in se- and self-government uh, but so far it has not extended to those below 18 in the right to vote uh, or as you suggest be below 35 in the right to run for president uh, there is no reason why if social Conceptions, cultural conceptions, changed, and we assumed that our teenage um, punk rock sophomores in high school were in fact qualified to uh, to vote, that we couldn't lower the voting age to say 15, uh, and if we assumed uh, uh, that that Dan Quayle as um, a um, law school student. Uh, was qualified to be president we could have lowered the uh, presidential qualifications to 22 uh, but i think that depends on certain cultural and social definitions that exist in any society there's a point uh, that, that w- w- at where a society draws a realistic line and says that newborn babies are not right you know don't have the same rights to vote that a 45 year old does so i don't see any definite i don't see a real incompatibility between certain kinds of of uh, socially defined restrictions along these lines, and it 's a question of debate in the society on what is legitimate and just and what is what is not legitimate and just to where you draw this line along
1: that same line uh, we're a nation of supposed to law in order to function you have to lay down a program if you want to see uh, uh, a problem that gets created and try listening to whatever TV station you have to activity in the House of Representatives, which has a very restrictive uh, operation because it has to function with something over 400 people. So we must have a pattern. Now, that pattern was laid down and accepted along the line, so why should we try to change the 35-year-old to the 34-year-old? We got a law. And for a nation living by law, that's the law. If you don't like it, try to correct it, but don't try to hang it on a social idea. That, I think, is part of your answer.
0: I'll take that as a supplement to my answer, yes. Jim? Your, your question on how do we view Lincoln uh,
1: is an interesting one, I think a difficult one for Americans to answer. On the one hand, he's the great emancipator, almost a godlike figure, a martyr saint. On the other hand, he was a uh, large part responsible for a war that only at 600,000 deaths, and almost ruined was made a very close thing. In fact, he was a winner.
0: Your, your question was a complex one and uh, with several parts, but let me state at the outset that I disagree with one of the premises that I think underlined your question, which was that Lincoln was in large part responsible for this war that caused 620,000 deaths. I do not agree with that. Uh, this war was started by the Confederate de- decision to fire on American soldiers and the American flag at Fort Sumter. Um, that was the single act that precipitated war, uh, one can look at other acts or events or developments that led up to that. Uh, one could, I mean, in effect, if you're going to say that Lincoln was r- responsible for this war, you would have to uh, say that uh, because he was elected president, he was responsible for the war because that was the act that precipitated uh, that precipitated secession which in turn eventually led to war. But Lincoln was elected president by a constitutional majority. And it was the refusal of the southern states to, effect, to, to accept uh, that constitutional election and to go out of the Union that, uh, that, that precipitated the crisis, which in turn precipitated the war. Lincoln, of course, and the northern people could have said, uh, well, erring sisters depart in peace. Uh, But Lincoln, in effect, said that he was not elected president to preside over the dissolution of the United States. He said he had a constitutional oath registered uh, in heaven to preserve, protect, and defend this nation. Uh, If he had not done so, I think it would be more likely to have condemned him for failure to fulfill the responsibility of his office. Um, How is Lincoln perceived today? Well, there's an ongoing Lincoln scholarship that many of you are at least as familiar with as I am. Uh, and it takes several directions. In recent years, there have been three books that in one, one way or another are psychobiographies or psycho psychohistories uh, that try to apply Freudian or Jungian or some other, to me, impenetrable concepts to understanding Lincoln and his relationship to the United States. George Forge's book on... Um, on Lincoln, basically, as the as the uh, Lincoln and Parasite, Dwight Anderson's book on Lincoln's um, kind of Freudian uh, motivation, and Charles Strozier's book, which is a less Freudian and more responsible book, these are um, these are uh, uh, three attempts to link uh, Lincoln's ambition, uh, possibly his uh, Oedipus complex. Uh, to to the uh, to the larger issues uh, that led to a breakdown in comity and to secession and civil war in the 1860s, but at the same time, other Lincoln scholarship has taken a different direction. Uh, it's rejected the old Randall, synth- uh, the old Randall um, idea that Lincoln was a conservative uh, on the slavery race. And southern issues, who was constantly at war with the radicals in his own party, uh, who uh, whose whose solution to the ills that beset America would have been much more just and benign and peaceful, if only he hadn't had these pesky radicals to contend with in the Republican Party. That was a that was a consensus of the historiography that prevailed in the 1940s and 50s. But it has been pretty well destroyed, I think, by scholarship in the 60s and 70s. I think of Hans Treffes' book on Lincoln and the, uh, and the Radicals, or on the Radical Republicans is what he calls it. I think of Stephen Oates' biography and a number of other studies, some work by David Donald, who is now at work on what supposedly will be the definitive biography of Lincoln. Lincoln scholarship continues to take a multiplicity of directions. My own opinion uh, and my own evaluation of Lincoln has, over the years, uh, uh, has, has deepened my admiration for him. Has grown. Uh, an extraordinary man, a man who was placed in an almost impossible crisis position, and who dealt with it better than probably anybody else could have done. So, uh, I, I've become more and more. I started out my first book. Uh, was a study of the abolitionists during the Civil War and Reconstruction its viewpoint was similar to that of the abolitionists critical of Lincoln for being so slow so conservative in moving toward emancipation and beyond emancipation to some conception of equal rights for black the more i realize of uh, what uh, bitterly divided opinion on that issue lincoln had to contend with the more i had come to admire his skill in holding together uh, a coalition of radicals conservatives and moderates like himself and continuing to move uh, at the right pace at a pace that would uh, continue to to command support from a majority of society uh, moving toward liberty toward this new definition of liberty without so badly dividing the coalition that he needed uh, to win the war that he was able to through skillful leadership both win the war and move toward this expanded concept of liberty. Uh, so that's that's sort of my view on the whole question. Paul? I'm concerned with
1: the, with the GIs that served in 1860 and 1861 in the North. The majority were volunteers. If you read the history, there's, there's the 20th Indiana and the, the, the 22nd Illinois and so on. They joined. Their state colors. What were their concepts of liberty? Were they fighting for their state, or fighting for their national colors? Uh, did their concept change between 1861 and 1865?
0: How did they feel? The question concerns the average uh, soldier, Northern soldier, Union soldier in the Civil War, who enlisted, um, who enlisted locally in regiments that were sponsored by the state, and of course called the 20th Indiana, 22nd. Illinois, and so on. And the question uh, asks, what was their concept of liberty and of nationalism, and did this concept change during the war? What did they think they were fighting for? And uh, I think is basically what you're asking. They saw themselves, and they said so over and over again in their letters, as fighting for the preservation of the best government that had ever existed on Earth from its destruction by a crew of treasonous rebels. Uh, <laughs> We, we, we have a, a Billy Yank right here, I can see. Who lived in the South. Uh, they, they saw themselves as fighting uh, for the flag, for the preservation of the nation, as the embodiment of liberty. I think Lincoln was a was a superb spokesman for the very point of view that they expressed. And I think that the attitude of many of them, certainly not all, but many of them underwent this Transformation from a negative to a more positive concept of liberty, especially with respect to the emancipation of the slaves during the war. Scarcely, uh, very few of them who enlisted in 1861 thought they were going to war to free the slaves. Some, but very few. But as time went on, just as Lincoln himself and most Northerners became convinced that it was necessary to free the slaves in order to put down a rebellion led and sponsored by slaveholders and supported by slavery as the basis of its economy, that they must strike against slavery. Not because in many cases, probably in most, they had any great love or even commitment to the liberty of black people. Most of them did, did not, but some of them changed their minds. Uh, even at the end of the war, I think they continued to think that they were basically fighting for the preservation of the nation and the defense of its flag, but that now, for them, for a majority of them, after all, 78% of them voted for Lincoln in 1864, when one of the issues in that election was whether whether emancipation ought to be endorsed, and therefore in Lincoln, Lincoln's war policies, including emancipation, ought to be endorsed. 78% of them voted for Lincoln in 1864. So it's a rough way of calculating how many of them accepted that expanded concept of what they were fighting for. Uh, I think they had come to include this larger concept of liberty among the American liberties they were fighting for. I'll hear the question? Uh, the question be- referred to Bill Sapphire's talk here I guess about a year and a half ago which focused primarily on the civil liberties issue during the war which is one of the central themes of his book as well and the degree to which um, it's justifiable to restrain certain kinds of liberty in wartime. Um, well, I think that the best way to uh, to give my view of that is to, um, is to refer again to that that life and limb metaphor that Lincoln used and that I quoted in my talk uh, which I think is so effective as a metaphor or was so effective as a metaphor in the time of war when of course many soldiers had suffered amputation of limbs as the only way to stop the spread of infection Uh, if, if you were wounded in the arm or leg it often was necessary to amputate that arm in order to save your life and nobody nobody likes to have an arm or a leg amputated. Um, You're losing a part of yourself, you're losing part of your liberty. Nobody in Civil War likes to uh, arrest people for speaking out against the war. But Lincoln's argument was that it may have been necessary to do some of this to preserve the life of the nation which was the larger embodiment of liberty. After all, if you die from gangrene, you've lost your life. If the nation dies from Civil War, it's lost the destruction of the nation at least would mean the destruction of the of the vision of liberty that had been part of that nation when it was founded so i'm in, i'm inclined to uh, to go along with um, with lincoln's metaphor that uh, temporary suspension of some kinds of civil liberty in a civil war may in fact be necessary uh, and i suppose uh, i mean i think Sapphire's view is different if I read his book correctly, I didn't hear his talk here, of course. But I think he, is, uh, he takes a much more critical view of, of Lincoln's, uh, of the suppression of, civ- of some civil liberties during the war. But I'm inclined, uh, and I think I've been influenced uh, on this by Mark Neely, who's studying this question and will soon, I think, uh, publish a book on it uh that uh that the the relative degree of violation of civil liberties in the North during the Civil War was given the cri- the dimensions of the crisis relatively mild as far as for comparing it with the South, it's often said that uh, Jefferson Davis did not suspend the writ of habeas corpus for as long a time as Lincoln did. Uh, we don't know how many southern. Civilians were arrested for speaking out against the war because of the chaos and destruction of Confederate records. What we do know is that in some regions of the South, like East Tennessee, Unionist dissent was ruthlessly suppressed, uh, more ruthlessly suppressed than, say, comparable Confederate sympathy in Maryland in 1861. Uh, So the Confederacy was faced with the same kinds of, uh, of necessities as they saw it, uh, to, to, uh, to suppress certain civil liberties in wartime in order to, to provide the, uh, the uh, wherewithal to, in, to, to carry on the war. The Confederates, uh, actually, uh, a larger percentage of the Confederate Army was raised by conscription than of the Union Army. Uh, the restraints and controls on the economy of the South were far more rigorous than they were in the North, the South was on much more of a uh, wartime uh, crisis emergency mobilization economy than the North. So in many respects, I think the, the curtailments of, of traditional peacetime liberties may have been greater in the South than they were in the North, but only because the South faced an even greater crisis in mobilizing its resources and preventing dissent than probably even the North did. Okay, just uh, one
1: more, Nathan. I apologize for the state of my voice, It's not my question. I have been troubled a number of years. There are many people here say thought on the dichotomy of opinion or thought that Lincoln had, which over a period of time, which might have been a genesis of thought in his mind, about how he could say, if I could preserve the union somewhat paraphrased without freeing the slave, I would do so. And as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master and then ultimately,
0: it is free of these slaves. How did all those three reconcile the image, your and to thoughts on your interpretation of it? That's a good last question. I'll try to rephrase it. for th- Were there some who did not hear the question? Uh, the gentleman said he's, he's always been troubled and he thinks probably most people here might be troubled by the dichotomy between Lincoln on the one hand saying in his famous letter to Horace Greeley that if I could save the Union, Uh, By freeing none of the slaves, I would do so, and of course he also said, if I could uh, save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do that. And some freeing some and not freeing others, I would do that. How do you reconcile that with his any 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 number of his other statements condemning slavery? The one he quoted was, uh, "As I would not be a slave, neither would I be a master." How do we reconcile these two things? Well, I think it's not hard to reconcile them. And one way to uh, begin to reconcile them is not to forget the last sentence in the famous letter that he wrote to Horace Greeley, the one in which he said, if I could save the Union by freeing none of the slaves, etc. Uh, His last sentence went something like this, by saying this I do not mean to retract anything I have ever said about my personal wish that all men could be free. That's the key. When Lincoln says, I would save the Union... By doing one thing or another. He is talking as President of the United States and Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces in time of war, charged with the responsibility of A, defending the Constitution, which when he wrote that letter still protected slavery, and B, preserving the life of the nation, which required the best means to win the war: freeing some of the slaves, freeing none, freeing all. Uh, when he said, But I abate no Jot of my personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. He's speaking as a person who is anti-slavery and moral conviction. And he said on, on other occasions that he was not free to act out his personal convictions as President of the United States because he was restrained by his oath to the Constitution. When he said this in this letter to Greeley, he had already made up his mind to issue an Emancipation Proclamation to, quote, free some of the slaves as a means of of preserving the Union. He did so not under his constitutional authority as President of the United States, but under his constitutional authority as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces in time of war to seize enemy property used in aid of rebellion. He said subsequently that that Emancipation Proclamation would not apply in areas that were not in rebellion, he also assumed that it would not apply in peacetime. That's why, by 1864, he endorsed the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment is what, in effect, reconciles Lincoln, the President, with a responsibility to the Constitution, to Lincoln, the man of anti-slavery conviction who wishes all men could be free now the two come together uh, and i think that is that is the way to explain it